Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in His Word is Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 17. Welcome to Christ the King, Trinity Sunday. Those of you who are visiting with us, especially warm welcome to you, those who are returning from times away, or those of you who are here every week, welcome. We're going to do things a little differently this morning. Not precisely how we typically handle sermon time. In fact, I have a handout for you this morning, which is a bit shocking, I know. So Roger and Stephen are going to go ahead and distribute a handout for the sermon I've never done this before. Every time. Never done this. <laughs> Today is Trinity Sunday. You've picked that up from the service so far. This is the Sunday in the year that marks the end of the sequence of the of the church year calendar that started months ago in Advent and then went all the way through to Pentecost last week when, when David preached. Uh, for Pentecost for us last week. This is also the Sunday that is the beginning of the longest and the longest stretch of time in the church year calendar, traditionally called Trinity season or often referred to as ordinary time. That carries us all the way until Advent will begin again in several months. This then is the Sunday of the year when we ought to explicitly focus on God as Trinity. And I guess the difference this morning from what we normally do at the sermon time is that this is probably going to feel a little more like a teaching time than a sermon time, I guess, if such a distinction can actually be made. Because Trinity Sunday is not an easy Sunday to preach, to be honest with you. And part of the challenge of Trinity Sunday is that the doctrine of the Trinity, it's often said, is a doctrine that is never explicitly stated in Scripture, yet is the clear implication of Scripture. And and if by that we mean that there is nowhere in Scripture that you find an explicit doctrinal summary of what it means to say that God is triune, then that's true. But as we'll see in Romans chapter 8, you can't explain even something as basic to the Christian faith as salvation unless you're working in terms of a triune God. In other words, the Trinity is in the Bible... It's just that there's no place in the scriptures that has anything like the definition you see printed at the top of your handout. So have a look there. At the top of the handout that you received, it says Article 1 of Faith in the Holy Trinity. Now, I don't know if you're at all familiar with what are called the 39 articles of religion that come out of historic Anglicanism. Some of you probably are 
aware of those. If you have been confirmed in the Anglican Church, or if you ever come to be confirmed in the Anglican Church, you would hopefully be asked to study them, at least in some sense. They can be found in the back of most Anglican prayer books, such as the Canada Prayer Book, which has the 39 articles on page 698. These articles were intended to be a doctrinal statement. They originated in a set of articles that was written back in 1553, near the very beginnings of Anglicanism. And they cover topics such as the doctrine of God and revelation and sin and justification and the church and the sacraments and church discipline and Christian living. They're significant to us as part of the Anglican network in Canada, I, I want you to know, because ANIC, in fact, includes them. If you go to the Anglican network in Canada website, you can link to them under the section labeled Our Beliefs. So the 39 articles are, in some sense, central to what we believe as a church, <clears throat> a, a doctrinal summary. And so it's no mistake that these articles begin where they do in Article 1, of faith in the Holy Trinity, and you have it there. Read along with me as I read it aloud to you. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in this unity of this, in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, this being a sermon and not a lecture, although it might feel a little more like a lecture today, we're not going to take this definition and go ahead and unpack the significance of every term in it, though every term in it is significant. I just want you to see one thing. I want you to see that there's, there's two sentences in this statement, and I want you to look at the beginning of each one of them. So the very first sentence begins, there is but one living and true God, and then the second sentence begins towards the end of the, of the next line on your handout. And it says, And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons. One God, three persons. That's the Trinity. And the key question for us in this context this morning is not to unpack all the rest of that statement, but to ask, where in Scripture does it become evident that this is true? And the fact is that there could be many places in the Scriptures that we could look to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity over the sweep of the Holy Scriptures, but this morning we'll just consider this one, Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 17. So my goal this morning is simple, though not easy to accomplish perhaps, but it's simple. I want us to be delighted in 
God on Trinity Sunday. I want us to leave this service giving glory to God for who He is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Romans 8, I think, helps us to that end because it's one of the best texts in the New Testament for seeing how God, in all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how God, the Trinity, relates to us. How day by day we live differently because of who God is and how God is at work in our lives. That's my goal. So this is going to be a bit of a different approach than normal. You have the text now printed on the handout that you received. And you'll see there that just below the scripture reference, I wrote God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And have indicated there with visual cues to remind us which person of the Trinity we're reading about within the text. So for... References to God the Father are in bold type. References to God the Son are in italicized type. And references to God the Spirit are underlined. And in fact, Roger pointed out that I missed three of them in the paragraph. So if you're really paying attention as we do this, you can find the three instances where I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't highlight, I didn't bold it or italicize it or underline it. Three times I missed in this passage. I've done all this because I think it's easy to take a text like Romans 8 and you just glaze over it, right? You read it and you, you just kind of, you miss. You just glaze over and you miss that right at the heart of Paul's explanation of how it is that you're made children of God is the Trinity. So if you'll allow it, I'm going to read the text again, but this time I want you to follow along on the handout. And just to begin to think about the three persons of the triune God and how they're working and how they're relating to one another just in this text. And let me plead with you as I do that to not somehow turn this into a theoretical exercise. It's kind of an odd sermon. We're going to be making a lot of observations, but we're not just putting on our scholarly hats and trying to split hairs that don't matter. These verses are the reality of your daily life, Christian. Paul's not going on into the doctrine of the Trinity here because he just thinks it's interesting. He's talking about who God is and how that matters to you every day. How you make decisions, how you grow, how you talk to people, how you live your life. If you're a Christian, this passage describes how you live because how you live is directly connected to who God is. So I just don't want us to put this into the category that says, well, this is interesting, but not all that practical in real life. This is real life. Or we're missing the point of Trinity Sunday. Okay, verse 8. Follow along in the handout. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I just think, though it's... I. I couldn't decide whether this was a good idea or not. I just think that it's useful to think our way carefully through a text like this because there's a lot of complex things going on here. And all I've done is collect observations that I could make about each of the three persons of the Trinity just from these verses in Romans 8. It's not saying everything that could be said from the scriptures about these three persons of the Trinity by any stretch, but just from Romans 8 listing the observations I could make there at the bottom of the page. And I, I just kind of want to go through them with you and make some other comments and then try and draw it all together at the end. And actually rereading that passage, I found four things I missed. So there you go. You can see if you... you there's four things I missed in that passage, but you can study that later for homework, I guess, if this is sort of lecture style. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the three points of the rest of this sermon. And basically, you follow through as I go from on the list below the passage here, and that's, that's the outline of what we're doing. God the Father. God the Father has standards to which we are held accountable. I get that from verse 8, the very first verse of the text. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Paul says. And if you went back and read the beginning of chapter 8, you'd see that Paul's there talking about ways of living. And there's a way of living, he says, according to the flesh, in which we set our minds on the things of the flesh, and the result of that way of living, Paul says, is death. Death, because such living doesn't submit to God's law, he says. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God the Father has standards to which we're held accountable. But then we also learn in Romans 8 that God the Father has a spirit. That comes out in verse 9 when Paul draws the contrast. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh when you cannot please God, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Note that he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God. That is, of God the Father. 
So the same God that you can't please if you're in the flesh dwells in you by his own spirit. Look also at verse 11. Two times in that verse it's clearly stated that it's the spirit of him. That's God the Father. Of him who raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, there's the Trinity in one phrase, right? The spirit of him, God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. Later in verse 11, Paul says again, it's his spirit. And then also in verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So God the Father has a spirit. Next, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. I just read that. And you get that twice there in verse 11. And then the same God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead is the one, Paul says, so significantly, who will also give life to you, to your mortal bodies, through his Spirit. Then later in the passage, just moving down the list, it's God the Father who adopts us as his sons, through his Spirit, this is verses 14, 15, and 16. There's three references to that reality in the passage. And those of you who are with us, when we went through Galatians, you know that the word sons here is used as a legal term from the adoption and inheritance laws of first century Rome. It's not that it's just about men. It's a legal concept that refers to the status of all Christians, men and women who've been adopted into God's family and now enjoy the privileges and obligations and inheritance rights as God's children. And finally then on the list, that's why we move to see that it's God the Father who makes us heirs. Verse 17, and if children then heirs, heirs of God. So notice something at this point. Notice that it's the same God who has the standards to which we're held accountable, who we cannot please in the flesh, who takes the initiative to save us. Isn't that so? He raises Jesus from the dead. He gives life to us. He adopts us as his sons. He makes us his heirs. And of course, it's done through or by His own Spirit. This is God the Father. This is God the Father. Now, God the Son. I skipped it earlier, but you would have noticed how in verse 9, or I hope if you didn't notice it, notice this. This is the kind of thing that you can imagine reading these early manuscripts and someone like Paul writes something like this in verse 9 where Paul just makes this effortless switch between God the Father and God the Son. And he says the Son has a spirit just like the Father does. So verse 9, you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. But then immediately Paul says anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And it's verses like that that 
begin to form the basis for the doctrine of the Trinity and that help to explain things like why we say in the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. God the Son has a spirit as well. God the Son then is also in us, Paul says. You see that in verse 10? But if Christ is in you, And when is that true? Well, it's from the end of verse 9 again. Those who have the Spirit of Christ belong to Him. So I think Christ is in us because we have His Spirit. Two other things on the list under God the Son. We already saw that God the Son, of course, was raised from the dead by the Father. And there's many, many other passages that speak to the significance of the death and resurrection of the Son. Paul doesn't go into that in great detail here, but you're meant to sort of bring all that in at this point. And then finally, verse 17, the Son, Paul says, is an heir of the Father, and we are too. God the Son. And then God the Holy Spirit. Now, I've pointed out already that this spirit is just in this passage talked about as the spirit of the Father and of the Son, both. And so that's the first major observation to make, a key Trinitarian observation to make. But then the major thing that we go on to say about this spirit of God the Father and God the Son from this text is that it's the spirit who dwells in you. Verse 9 again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's there in verse 11 twice. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. It's at the end of the verse. His Spirit who dwells in you. And we'll come back to this in in just a couple seconds and talk about the results of this dwelling in us that are listed there on the handout. But first, let me just mention the one other thing that these verses explicitly say the Spirit does. Drop to the very bottom of the page you have. It's there in verse 16 where it says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Which makes sense if this is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God the Father and God the Son. The Spirit bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God. There's a kind of assurance that is intrinsic to the life of the Christian. That makes sense because it's when we talk about the Spirit dwelling in us that we come to the results in our lives of the work of the Trinity. And I have those listed for you in this section on the Holy Spirit where I say in the middle there, that the Spirit dwells in us with the result that, dot, dot, dot. Christian, here are the results. Here's where the work of the Trinity to save you intersects your life on a daily basis. I mean, we can't go to this part of the text without moving through the Father and the Son to get here can't talk about the work of the Spirit without realizing it's the Spirit of the Father who raised the Son, and it's also the Spirit of the Son that's at work in us. 
All of this is assumed when you come to talk about the work of the Spirit in our lives. We're not separating it somehow from the Father and the Son at this point, are we? It's the triune God at work in the person of the Spirit. This is your life. If the Spirit dwells in us, I have, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, but I'm going to break it into five. The first two are the same, just the point made. So five things to say about the result of the Trinity in your life. <clears throat> Sorry, a lot of content today. If the Spirit dwells in us first, we are no longer in the flesh, verse 9 says, but instead we are in the Spirit. I've already mentioned that, but what does Paul mean? A little tricky to see exactly what Paul means. When Paul says we are no longer in the flesh, he doesn't mean we actually cease to have physical material bodies or some such thing. That's obviously not the point. Flesh, for Paul, tends to be a technical term that refers to our sinful orientation, our sinful natures. Paul uses the language of in the flesh and in the spirit in the sense of what's driving you. What's motivating you? What's influencing you? And the closest parallel to, to how we talk today that I could think of would be, I don't know, I think people say this, when someone says something like, well, boy, she's really living in her own world, isn't she? Or he's really living in his own world most of the time, right? That means we're saying that that person seems to act differently because they're being driven by a set of circumstances or priorities that are influencing them. They're in their own world. Well, that kind of concept makes sense of what Paul's saying here. Either you're in the world of the flesh or you're in the world of the spirit. That makes sense of earlier in the chapter when Paul used language like living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit. When the Spirit dwells in us, we actually live differently. <laughs> We're no longer driven by desires of things characteristic of fallen sinful human nature. We think differently. We pursue different things. We desire different things. That's the first thing. We're no longer in the flesh, but instead are in the spirit. Second result of the fact that the spirit of the triune God dwells in us is that we belong to Christ. Remember that from verse 9 again? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that you can switch that around and say anyone who does have the spirit of Christ does belong to him. So that Paul can then go on in verse 10 to say that Christ is in you. All right, third thing, if the Spirit dwells in us, then thirdly, we are empowered, Paul says, to live righteously. Hear this one carefully. We're empowered to live righteously even though we are still in our mortal bodies. So look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. There's something new animating us. It's the spirit. And it's life for us, Paul says, because it promotes righteousness in our lives. I take that to mean righteous living, living that pleases God. The opposite of verse 8. You can't please God in the flesh. In the spirit, you can. Notice, please, that this happens now while we're still in our mortal bodies. See that in verse 11? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life. It's the same life he just mentioned in verse 10. Life because of righteousness. He'll give that life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is a present reality. Paul's not talking here about eternal life to come, though this life now leads to that life. There's a continuity between this life and the eternal life, but he's talking here about your daily life. That's why he goes right on in verse 12 to talk about how we live now, not according to the flesh, he says. And that this is possible because of what he says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, he says. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christian, with the Spirit of God indwelling you, you can put to death the deeds of the body. Do you believe that? Does that drive your daily life? Do you think like this? You do not have to continue in patterns of sin if you have the Spirit. This is Paul's good news to you. And it's because of the next thing that Paul says in verse 14. This would be the fourth, I guess, result of the Spirit. That if the Spirit dwells in us, we are then led by the Spirit of God. Do you see that in verse 14? For all who are led by the Spirit of God. Led to live differently. To think differently. To please God in our lives. So that fifthly, what is the resultant fact of all of this? We only need to finish verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We are his adopted sons, his children. That technical language there meaning we have the rights of children. Then verse 15 spells it out explicitly. You have received the spirit of adoption. Isn't that remarkable? The spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You have in your everyday life an intimate relationship with the Father through the Spirit. And verse 16 then says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that this relationship is true. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him.
It's not that life in the Spirit means it's all smooth sailing from here on out. We are taken into suffering, Paul says, but it's with a different power to go through it faithfully in a way that pleases God. Now, folks, this is Trinity Sunday. (laughs) And really, the only point I'm trying to make this morning is that you can't even live your everyday life as a Christian without some recognition of the Trinity. Because how are you going to face the day-to-day temptation to sin? Or how are you going to overcome sin in your life? Except through an active dependence on God the Spirit. Paul says it's by the Spirit you've put to death the deeds of the body in order to live. It's not optional. It's not that you have life, so now put to death the deeds of the body. It's by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and so live. Try it. Try it this week. When you come up against temptation or the pattern of sin that you want to put to death, stop and say to yourself, in fact, say it out loud. You decide what volume to say it at, depending on where you are, and who's overhearing you or whatever. But say it out loud. Say, I have the Spirit of God in me. And by the power of the Spirit of God, I will put this to death, and it will die. Try it. Try it. Or how are you going to face the times when you do fall into sin? Unless you call upon the mercy of God the Son, who died for your sin, who was raised, and who is in you by His Spirit. Or how are you going to face the sufferings and trials of life that Paul says will come? How are you going to do that unless you can cry out as children of your Father with language like, Abba, Father? Trusting Him to fulfill all that He's planned to do in your life. Trusting Him to give your mortal bodies life by His Spirit. To make you heirs of Him and joint heirs of with His own very Son. I don't know how you live (laughs) without the Trinity and how you go day by day in your life of faith without calling upon God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There is but one living and true God. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our eternal life depends on it. So it is in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that I say all these words to you.